Over 200,000 of the homeless people in the United States of America are women and girls. The most needed and understocked item in homeless shelters, feminine hygiene products. Joy Road Media is proud to tell you about the Clean Love Project. The Clean Love Project's mission is to help women and young girls feel clean, loved, and empowered by distributing clean love kits to alleviate their hygiene needs. Go to thecleanloveproject.org to find out how you can help. The Clean Love Project focuses on the Metro Detroit area, but it also distributes kits worldwide. If you are a female in need of a clean love kit, go to thecleanloveproject.org and request one today. Joy Road Media is a proud supporter of The Clean Love Project at thecleanloveproject.org. From the ragged heart of the Rust Belt, this is Great Lakes Confidential, with your hosts, Angie and Marty. So this is Great Lakes Confidential with usually Angie and Marty, but Marty is working. And so we're going to do another, have another guest on the show today. My new friend, Amanda, who is, hi, so you also are part of the Joy Road Media Network, which is really exciting. Yes. Yes. Hi. Um, Yeah. Our show is Dead Waves, uh, which is kind of what brings me here today. So tell tell us about Dead Waves first. Sure. Um, so Dead Waves is a improvised paranormal podcast uh, that follows uh, Lilith, Jack, and Grem. They run a radio show that deals with um, supernatural or otherwise paranormal problems that um, they try to help these callers climb into their radio show and just figure out all their strange issues. So we've had some... Um, <laughs> We've had quite a few interesting episodes. I mean, just where even to start, you know, um, (laughs) we've had demons with daddy issues. That was kind of like one of our first ones. We had a frozen caveman that we unfroze. There was, (laughs) yeah, just weird stuff like that. That is 100%. Yeah. That's funny. So how, how did you, cause that's really creative. Who kind of came up with this idea and how did this start? So it was all three of us, uh, myself and then my two co-hosts, Ryan and Alex. We had an original idea where we were going to be like this cult. I was going to be the cult leader looking for new members. And uh, we we technically recorded one episode that will never, ever, ever <laughs> see the light of day. <laughs> It was just really, really bad. And it just, it didn't really feel good. It didn't feel natural or anything like that. So we just kind of like sat on it for a bit. And then we really liked the idea of a show like Miss Cleo, um, you know, like, oh. like, 
Yeah. So like, um, you know, like the radio or like the TV host, you know, with like the psychic and everything. And then just kind of from there, it just kind of just kind of went wild, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> like with the character creation, because, you know, it's like, OK, so Amanda, if you're going to be the psychic, then OK, what's Ryan going to be? OK, Ryan's still going to be your husband, but he's going to be dead. And OK, and then Alex, we need something for you. Okay. You're the demon that killed him. <laughs> and then <laughs> we didn't have like a whole lot of like actual characterization at first. It's kind of been something that we've been finding along the way to what the show is now. We are, you know, in season three, we have um, at this point now a hundred episodes um, under wow. our belts. So it's really exciting. It's been a wild, wild adventure. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. I love that. I love that you guys were like, well, what about this Miss Cleo thing? Because that's something I remember from when I was younger. I'm 41. So in the 90s, I would have been like, you know, 10, 10 years old in 1990 and, and moving up from there, obviously. But I remember seeing the commercials for Miss Cleo and and hearing the late night like it was always late at night when those commercials came on and mm -hmm. so goofy. So I, I love, I love the concept of your show. That is so funny. So dead waves is a silly fictional show, but mm -hmm. you guys are based in a real place in Michigan. Is that right? Yes. Okay. In an actual ghost town, actually. Yes. Um, which again, this was something that I kind of thought about maybe a little further on once we had already started the podcast, but, um, just to kind of give like more to work with, I just started to research, you know, ghost towns in Michigan and there are a lot of yeah. ghost towns, like <laughs> we are full of them. Um, you know, if it wasn't just because of the lumber rush, which I'm going to talk about today, um, it was also copper. Copper was another big, um, you know, export for Michigan. I don't know where to start with all of this. Uh, I kind of went from, I had a single paragraph to, I have a, like seven pages of information. It's, <laughs> you know, it's really grown from just having some basic notes to, okay, I'm learning about the railroad. I'm learning about logging and lumber and lumberjacks yeah. and just how that whole thing was. So yeah, I've been kind of waffling <laughs> a little That's bit on where to start. That's awesome. I'm really excited because I, I know of the place I've been there once, but I was, to be honest, I was afraid to get out of my car. Um, okay. I was on a solo road trip and I, I basically decided, well, my boyfriend kind of pushed me along to take a solo trip North I'm from Northern Michigan. I still have a lot of family up there. So I went on a solo trip, solo road trip. And I hit up like, I don't know, seven or eight different places. I looked at like roadside America, you know, map or whatever, and found these different mm -hmm. places. I stopped at the, the two-story outhouse, like the smallest post office in mm -hmm. the state. And yeah. I stopped at, and I'm going to say it wrong. Is it Pear Shaney? Pear Shaney. Chenet. Okay. So I stopped there, but like I said, I was, I read a little bit about it and I was too scared to get out of the car. So I <laughs> rolled my window down and I was like, yep, looks like that's where it is. And then I left and that was the end of it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> tell us everything that you know about Pear Chenet. All right. So basically the town started as a lumberjack settlement back in 1869. And the difference between like a settlement 
and something that's like an established town is settlements typically moved with the lumberjack profession. It was pretty migratory. Uh, Lumberjacks would go from one area to the next, you know, so that's kind of how Parishonais started. It's about 10 miles Southeast of Grayling, just to kind of give you like a a rough idea for those of you map lovers out there. (laughs) But yeah, what was really interesting that I found out was that lumberjacks would actually have some inside knowledge to where railroads were going to be built. So they would kind of build these settlements uh, where they thought, you know, nearby these railroad tracks were supposed to be, you know, laid out, which is kind of really what got this, you know, this, I, yeah, just this, what I would describe as a beautiful town, mm-hmm. you know, we went from like a, a, a lumberjack settlement and then we go into, it is 1873. So you have the sawmill or owner whose name was George Shaney. He had received a grant from the railroad to build a stop, um, you know, as it was making its way up north, which he received a large sum for it. He did, you know, build a stop along the railroad where it was going to be. And that is what really established the town in 1874. Okay. So yeah, it took, it took, you know, a good three years for this town to really start to prosper. But by that time, they also got the post office in 1874, which was a big deal. Like towns getting a post office. That's, that's a pretty big thing, (laughs) you know, especially back then. Um, But not only that, they also had um, some two-story homes were starting to be built in the area instead of just like tents or like communal, you know, colonies, like what lumberjacks would normally sleep Hmm. in. Um, Because lumberjacks, again, this was a profession of mostly single men, like in their early 20s. It was back-breaking work. You worked six days a week for, um, I think, where's my note here? I have the amount of what they would be paid monthly. And it only works out to be like six or $700 a month to work, you know, 12 hour days in, in the winter, because a lot of, a lot of the times, you know, this was a profession in the winter months because it's what really helped move lumber from one area to another. You know, you have streams, you have tracks, things like that for them to turn this into a town was a pretty big feat for them. So the town kind of was built around um, the Shaney sawmill. Um, George Shaney was the sawmill owner. Eventually, though, there were two, at least two other sawmills that did pop up in the town itself. Um, There was also a wagon shop, a blacksmith, a carpenter, a doctor, a grocery store, and uh, the cemetery as well. So you said that you've driven through the area. You've You've been to Parishonay now. Yes. What did you see? Nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when you get off the expressway there, and this was a couple of years ago, so my memory is a little bit fuzzy, but I feel like I got off of 75 and Grayling. Yeah. I want to say, because there's a big, there's a military base out there. Yeah. And I want to say you drive past it. You go pretty far off the expressway, maybe. It might be 10 to 15 minutes away from the expressway. Can't remember. Then you drive down a, I want to say it's a dirt road. In places, it's not just like a regular dirt road. You know, we all know how dirt roads are in Michigan. They're pretty packed down. They're, you know. Oh, yeah. It feels like concrete, but it's dirt. 
but mm -hmm. this particular road, once you get going pretty far back, it's more sand than, than like a dirt road. So it's more like loose, almost like you're driving on a beach. So that right there made me feel very uncomfortable because I, I had an older car. I was by myself. My cell phone signal was fading quickly. And I was like, if I get stuck out here in, in sand, like, what mm -hmm. am I going to do? There's not very many houses, but then you kind of, you kind of go through these winding roads and then there's like basically a path. The place that I stopped, I remember looking to my left and there's like a, like a foot trail um, mm -hmm. and just a lot of, you know, woods. And I believe the foot trail leads to where the cemetery, and I believe the cemetery, if I remember correctly, is pretty overgrown. I don't know if you can get back there. But mm -hmm. I think that where the footpath was would have been where the it would have led to where that cemetery is at. And like I said, at that point, I saw and it was very pretty. It was sunny out. So it was like, you know, when you see the woods in the sunlight and it's like, oh, this is so magical. But then also it was yeah. like, this is also haunted and I'm alone. So I'm going to go ahead yeah. and back out. That's it. Yeah. You no. Know, and I think that really speaks to just how amazingly quick this town not only just popped up, but then just eventually turned into nothing, essentially. Yeah. It disappeared. Um, it did. It really, really <laughs> did. Um, I do have a statistic here. Um, 1877, the population was supposedly around 60. I did have some uh, like other reports. They were saying around 1500 hmm. was the population of the town. I don't really know how, again, how accurate that is. I wasn't able to fact check that census wasn't really, it wasn't really going on at that right. time. So I can only go by what I, what I can find. I'm assuming maybe it's a typo. 150 sounds a little bit more reasonable to me than 1500, yeah. but you were describing what the, um, you know, kind of like what the landscape is. And I did find a article from the Detroit Free Press in 1878 that details the conditions of Père Chenet. I think this is actually really, really interesting. It says it is beautifully situated on the broad plains or openings of that region and is surrounded on either side by a thriving farming community. The farmers here do not experience any difficulty in making two blades of grass where but one grew before for the soil needs only to be thoroughly cultivated to produce a pretty fair crop of most kinds of farm produce. Um, it goes on to say, you know, like there's lots of vacant land, like they mentioned homesteading, especially um, is perfect for that. They do mention that there is the rail railroad station next to the school and there is a church as well. Uh, church privileges is what they call it, which I think was um, kind of interesting. It, it does, it does get a little, um, a little dated. It says there is no excuse for the multitudes of professional starvers, <laughs> which back then meant the poor, Yeah, you know, and unemployed um, who congregate in large cities when they can have a good large farm given to them right here in Michigan. We are not anxious, however, for any of the above class of settlers, but would like to call attention to our locality as a summer resort, a pleasant retreat from the heat and dust of city life where the seeker may find a few days or weeks of pleasure with rifle and rod and breathe for once the purest atmosphere to be found 
this side of the Rocky Mountains. Wow. Yeah, no, I found that. And that, that was a really, really cool find for me because I've, I've never actually been up there. I do really want to drive up that way and visit it. But to find that was really, it was, it was cool. It was yeah. really cool for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it definitely, you know, I don't being, being somebody from Northern Michigan, I don't know that a lot has, I mean, clearly things have changed since the 1800s, but I think that in a lot of ways, they're also very, they're still very similar, you know, because it's just, what am I saying? A lot of the people that are there now have always been there. You know what I mean? Like the, like they have families that have always been there. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of it, you know, like the article said, it's more of a, res- like they want it to be like a resort town and I, and it's very desolate up there. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to drive for miles to find a grocery store, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it sounds like it's still very similar to, to the landscape even then, which is crazy in a way, but yeah, so interesting. It is. Yeah. From that point on, you know, Parishonet just kind of really started to take off in uh, 1879. It was the first Crawford County seat. It was a temp. <laughs> it was very temporary. Uh, Grayling actually really ha- like hated the fact that uh, Parishonet was chosen over them uh, just based on the fact that they said that they had more population. So it made more sense for Grayling to be the county seat, not huh. Parishonet. So yeah, it it actually kind of was a bit of a legal battle, albeit short-lived, because there was a delegation of Grayling citizens that they went by railroad and stole the county records. Oh my God. Yeah. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So outlaws up there. Yeah. It... You know, we talk about the Wild West, you know, uh, like California and Arizona and all of those areas, but no, it really was all over. You could get away with so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So did these people get like caught and charged with a crime or? I don't know. I couldn't find any information regarding that. Again, it's, it's so hard to find, you know, public records like that dating that far back. So I couldn't find any information as far as, you know, what happened afterwards, but that was, (laughs) yeah, that was a pretty interesting bit of trivia, I suppose. (laughs) Man, that is so bizarre. So then, yeah, uh, by 1881, Parishonet had a population of around 80. That's kind of the same number that I came to. Again, there is some speculation as to how big the town actually got to be, but 80 is the number that I'm going to stick with just for the sake of the information I found. So then, yeah, by that time, there were two additional sawmills. Uh, There was a very large general store. There was the schoolhouse and an entire railroad depot. It wasn't just a stop. It was an entire depot. Wow. Pretty big thing. Again, this, this was a very thriving town. You saw people coming from all over. Um, when I was looking at the railroad maps, actually, of kind of where they go, it's real hard to, to tell with this. <laughs> but um, so if you were to look at your hand, you have the very bottom of like your palm that had a railroad that ran all the way from Detroit to Chicago. Okay. And then you had a secondary railroad that ran literally just straight up. It went all the way from, I don't remember what the city is, and it doesn't really exist anymore, the city where the railroad started, but it went all the way up to Mackinac City. And Parishonet is one of the stops where if you look at the space where your middle finger and your ring finger meet, 
that first knuckle, that's a really good idea of where this railroad ran and where you can find Parishonet. Between the years of 1881 and 1893, I didn't really find anything as far as information goes. I can only assume that it was just like a major bustling town because at that point in 1893, we had the first diphtheria outbreak. And this was the start to the ruin of Parishonet was this first outbreak. And basically it, it wiped out a fair majority of the population with Unfortunately, the majority of that were children. You know, children are very susceptible to diphtheria. This was, um, you know, prior to hand washing, you know, regular hand washing and yeah. just basic hygiene. So not only do you have just the, the time itself, but then you also have other lumberjacks. You have travel coming through the railroads. You have just this migratory pattern of just, you know, people moving and just everything mm -hmm. you just so you have this first outbreak hits the town really really hard and then a second outbreak comes in 1897 so four years later a second outbreak happens and that wipes out another fair majority of the population that was left so at this point a lot of people were moving out and they were actually moving to Grayling because there was a mine that had opened up that was very, very prosperous. So a lot of people were moving from the lumberjack business because by then the lumberjack or the lumber boom has kind of ended by the 1890s. So now it's moving on to other, you know, metals really was like the next big thing. So you have people moving not only because of the disease, but because it's just makes more sense. There's right. more work, you know, 10 miles north. So why not? But then, yeah, after that, it, it was just a slow decline of people just leaving. 1901, no more than 25 people were living in the town. Um, 1912, you have the post office finally closed, just was no longer in operation. Uh, 1917, about 18 people were living in the town and the land was starting to be auctioned off by that time. I have a note here. It, I believe it was Beaver Creek. Mm -hmm. They had taken over. And this is the other really cool piece of information that I found. Um, there was an interview with a man who actually lived in Parishonet at the time when he was 13 in 1921. So he lived in the town kind of in the very last dying days, you know, years of this small town. He had talked about his name was Everett Corwin. He was 13 at the time. A fire had broken out actually behind the cemetery. Um, and the way the town was laid out, there was one of the sawmills was right next to the cemetery. And so it was kind of thought that maybe there was like, uh, you know, a fire started just from that, you know, sparks, things just happen. Nature takes, yeah, you know, does yeah. what it does. But yeah, it the fire was actually so bad. They almost lost what was left of the town. Oh my God. It, yeah, it was, let's see here. Uh, the fire was so hot that he and his, his father and a man named Rube Babbitt, uh, they had been fighting at this, like fighting the fire at the cemetery, trying to just get dirt on it. Um, and things like that. But the fire got so hot, they had to evacuate across the street into the main part of town. And at this point, the fire had kind of gotten out of control and they were kind of debating on what to do, like if they should just leave, if they should, you know, whatever. Yeah. But a rain had actually started to fall on the town and it put out the fire. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They got pretty lucky. Yeah. And what was also really interesting 
you know, with this whole fire was that Corwin doesn't, he never remembered the sawmills actually being in operation when he was a small child. So how the fire actually started is still kind of a mystery. Yeah. Not quite sure. I I did read that there were rumors that maybe some other, you know, people from other towns possibly came to just burn it down, destroy what was left because it had two huge outbreaks. That is so bizarre. Highly contagious disease. So did they go to try to, you know, quell it and it it backfired? I don't know. But yeah, basically after the fire and everyone had at this point basically just kind of packed up. Like that was, that was the end. What do you do when you have two massive outbreaks and a huge fire happening? Yeah. You, you can't stay there anymore. So yeah, just the town just kind of was left to rot. And now all you find are like holes in, yeah. in like depressions, like where buildings used to be. Like you can see where they were. They're just not there anymore. And then, um, yeah, the cemetery from what I was reading is still there. A VFW hall in the area. Um, you were talking about how like it was kind of like overgrown. I did see that they had like were cleaning it up and trying to keep it nice. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, vandalism still does happen. That's just one of the things with it being a ghost town. You have a lot of rumors about what happened. So the cemetery was subject to vandalism and grave robbing, one of which was later on to be a sheriff. He stole the sheriff was he stole a skull out oh of God. one of the graves and he would drive around with it as a teenager in in the back windshield and he later on became a sheriff. I don't remember what county, but yeah. What a psycho. But yeah, at one point there was 90 (laughs) bodies buried and they don't know how many are left. There's still some graves. There are definitely broken uh, tombstones, but a lot of the grave sites just have like either numbered markers Mm -hmm. or families who know that their family is buried there. They do have, um, I've seen pictures of like just big rocks with like carved names in it, you know, just placed where they think, think the plot is, you know absolutely just bonkers so i wonder because like what happens when a place becomes a ghost town like that why doesn't the state step in and and i don't know like do something to protect the cemetery area or i realize that you'd have to get the permission of family members in order to exhume bodies and move them to a different place but Mm -hmm. I wonder why that's not something that's done because clearly it's bringing attention, you know, people knowing that it's a ghost town and and that there's a cemetery there and knowing that other people have vandalized it and other people have robbed the graves. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost an invitation for it to continue to happen. Listeners, please don't do this. It's super disrespectful and gross. But like, why doesn't the state step in and say, we're just going to avoid this by, you know, putting, I don't know, security or having the bodies moved. It just seems weird yeah. to just leave them there to, to kind of, I don't know. Right. And I mean, I was reading, obviously, some families did move their remains, you know, to other places because they move, they don't want to keep it there. Yeah. But no, you're right. I don't know why they wouldn't, why the state wouldn't take some sort of, you know, initiative to also help protect, you know. Yeah. As if, if, yeah. I think if I had a family member buried there, I'd be a little pissed off to find out that, you know, the area was susceptible to vandalism and, and 
grave robbers and nobody's doing Mm -hmm. anything. It just seems very strange to me that that's a thing. Right. I will say from what I've been reading, it is, uh, there, there is someone, there is someone who does watch the grounds, obviously, um, because people who have gone out ghost hunting, looking for the cemetery or just the town itself. There, there have been times where people have been stopped. Like you can't, you can't stay in the cemetery after sundown. That is like a law. You can't. Um, And the people who have tried, they have been confronted by a person with a shotgun. And I, I think it's, I think it's more possibly just maybe just families that still live in the area, just kind of taking the policing in their own hands, which at that point, I don't really, I don't blame them. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't want, you know, my family's graves robbed and if someone was looking out for it, then yeah. Okay. So all in all, the town was there from how many years was it there for then? So from, we'll say from 69 when it was settled until we'll say 21. Okay. So about 60-ish years it was there? Uh, 52 years. Okay. Wow. That's really doesn't seem like a long time. It doesn't. Like, like it doesn't at all. Especially when you like take into consideration just the amount of people moving just going to different areas because we also had a huge immigration going on a lot from Scandinavia or lumberjacks, especially. So yeah, it's for it to just be so thriving to be in the Detroit press, you know, as like a tiny, tiny town, you know, in Northern Michigan. And then just, it's gone. Poof. Yeah. God, can you imagine just, first of all, can you imagine being like a resident of that town and you're just watching all of your neighbors die from diphtheria or, you know, whatever. And it's just, because when you think about it, you said that at one point there was like 25 residents. Mm-hmm. So that's like what, four or five families, maybe six families, like yeah. it's nobody. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, I, I'm reading one account, you know, where one family lost five family members to just the first outbreak itself. So, I mean, we're, yeah, we're talking large families, not even yeah. just small ones. Yeah, no, it is. Like, it really is hard to wrap my mind around that sometimes it, just yes. like, <laughs> it's so crazy. And the only reason why I ever, I ever even knew that the place was there or not there was because I was looking for like roadside attractions. And I'm always looking for places that are haunted because I'm a creep like that. But that was, you know, that's one of the places that always pops up on lists in Michigan of places that are haunted. And so it I is, like, I got to check this place out. And yes. I, I will say that when I, you know, I, I'm one of those people, I fully believe in spirits. I fully believe that there are otherworldly things out there. I have been in a lot of places that were considered to be haunted. I have felt things. I have, you know, I have seen things. I've heard things. And you get a real creepy vibe out there. I mean, it is it is unsettling. It's a beautiful place. You know, I love being out in nature, but it is unsettling. Even just yeah. rolling my window down, I was like, mm, nope, uh-uh, not going to do yeah. it. <laughs> it's, it's just certain places like, I hate to be cliche, but you know, the vibe is just all wrong. Yeah. Well, knowing that there was that many people that died there and that the, the, the town was only there for 50, 52 years. Yeah. yeah. The vibe is all wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
And see, uh, the other thing that was really interesting, and this is probably also why it pops up all the time as, you know, haunted places in Michigan is because there is, you know, some folklore, you know, surrounding what caused this, this outbreak in the first place, you know, you have like the first, you know, the first story that says, you know, Parishonet is on stolen land, which is highly likely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of like the first you know, story that people kind of say is, oh, it's on stolen land. So land is cursed. And that's what brought the outbreak. And then there's another story that's a little bit more popular that has two different endings essentially to it. (laughs) Yeah. So um, essentially it is a story of an unwed mother was ejected from the community for being a witch, because we know that all unwed mothers are witches and (laughs) evil and when she was basically ejected from the community, she cursed the town. And then this is kind of like where um, the story deviates a little bit between the two. Uh, so the first story says that um, she was hung from a tree in the cemetery and then buried at its base. And that's what officially cursed the town. Or the other one is that she was just driven out into the woods and then she cursed the town from the woods. And I I think that I heard the story about her being hanged in the woods mm-hmm. and buried. I'm pretty sure now that you say it, I'm pretty sure that that is the story that I was reading about before I went up there. So yeah, that would, that would. Yeah. And then the other really, I, they, they aren't like really backstory stories or whatever, but apparently there is also a portal in the cemetery that's found in the center of three trees that form a triangle. And then if you stand in the middle of the trees, like in the very center, uh, you can't hear anything like all sounds just kind of like, there's nothing. If you're in the quietest room in the world, essentially. Well, I won't be doing that. (laughs) Absolutely not. That's no. I hope that you, I hope you take a trip up there. I, you know, I'm really thinking with this next summer and everything, I really do want to, I, it's on my bucket list. I need to do it. I just, I just need to do it. Just go for it. (laughs) Yes. Take somebody with you. So you don't freak out like I did and and just leave, but yeah, no, I, if, if I go, it would definitely be as, as a podcast team. (laughs) (laughs) At that point we have to. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that they kind of like it was no longer a town in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. What is it a part of now? Um, so I think, again, it's Beaver Creek is who technically has control over that land. Okay. And it's, again, it, it was a lot more digging than I could really do because it gets into like the really like minute of just legalese that I don't yeah. understand. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, I think it is Beaver Creek that technically does take care of that area now. Okay. I know, like I said, there are some houses back there, you know, there, it it is a residential area, but it really kind of makes me wonder why, I mean, obviously there's a cemetery back there, but there's still a lot of land that could be developed into something. I wonder, I wonder why it hasn't been. And I wonder if there are any plans to do so in the future, or if they're just kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know what, this, you know, we've had too many issues with this in the past. We're not going to, we're not going to mess with it anymore and just leave it. Right. That is all I have on Pear Shanae. That's, I mean, that's, that's amazing. (laughs) It's way more than what I found out. I was just like, oh, this looks cool. Let's check it out. 
That's like sweet. I said, it was, I, I literally went from just a paragraph of simple information. Then just from there, just trying to get, you know, an idea of how could a town just pop up and then disappear like that? Yeah. Just that's what it led me to seven pages of <laughs> lumberjacks, railroads and ghosts. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it so much. So when you guys go, you're going to have to come back and tell us what you found and, you know, give us the scoop and what you've learned from being there. I don't know if I'll ever make the trip again. My, you know, my kids love to do exploring with me. So maybe they'll talk me into it. I don't know, but we'll see what happens. But we definitely want to have you back on after you guys go so we can get more, you know, insider information. So Oh, for sure. I will. I am 100% down to come on again and talk about my experience. Awesome. Awesome. So awesome. Yeah. That's Parishine then. I guess that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been great. I love, I'm having so much fun doing this. I am learning so many new things about this state. It's just, it's incredible. It is. It, yeah. yeah. Just the little facts, the little nuggets that you don't hear or know about. Yeah. It could be really amazing. God, what a <laughs> What a cool state we live in, yeah. right? That's Michigan's awesome. the best out of all the other states. Just don't tell them I said that. It's okay. I, I, my lips are sealed. Okay. <laughs> awesome. The other states aren't listening right now, right? Right, right. No, <laughs> nobody else is listening. It's all okay. Michiganders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sweet. All right. So yeah, thank you so much again. Like I said, this was amazing. I'm really excited to, to continue to learn more stuff. I'm so thankful that you made some time for me today and I guess we'll head on out. So thank you. Yeah, you your evening. Text me when you get home. Oh, I will definitely. <laughs> Bye. Bye.